You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. High Tops, Chicago, Illinois. Early in our relationship, I was putting on a suit to attend a wedding with Jessica, and she advised me, Sean, you really shouldn't wear white socks with a dark suit. I haven't put my socks on yet, I said. That is the color of my feet. That's how pale I am. Unless you are close enough to make out the hair on my legs, you'd assume I am wearing a set of socks. Socks that are so white and glowing, they have never been worn before. Everyone loves the sun. It is responsible for life on Earth, and convertibles, and rompers, and frozen daiquiris. But when you're as pale as me, and abhor the sun, you hate something that everyone else loves. It's like hating Tom Hanks. People don't even believe you dislike it. You are a member of a club so lonely, people just assume that you are making it up. The sun has been a lifelong adversary. My Lex Luthor. My Joker. Except, in this universe, everyone loves the Joker and doesn't mind that he's a homicidal maniac. When you're as pale as me, the sun emits two kinds of rays. The solar rays, the normal rays of energy we all know, but also the rays of ridicule, which is the sun's ability to shine mortification down upon you. When I was young, my mom would pack sun hats that I found to be humiliating, and worse yet, she would never remember that she packed them until the exact moment when I found all my peers at the pool. Jeez, it's getting hot. And where is Sean? Oh, there he is, making friends. That's nice. He often struggles with that. You know, that reminds me. I have a giant powder blue sunbonnet I want him to wear. My dad was even worse. He would talk about the sun like we owed it money and it was looking for us. Do not underestimate what he's capable of, he'd warn us, pointing to the sky. My brother Paul was once talking to girls at the zoo when my dad came running down the stairs at the elephant exhibit, screaming, Paul! Paul! Get to shade! It's a blast furnace out here! Do you know him? The girls asked. Paul could not speak. The sun's rays of ridicule had petrified him. Paul! Can you hear me? My dad was waving his hands for attention. Get to shade! The sun is out! It's pure energy! It was always amazing to me that Irish skin evolved in such a way that it could not even handle a summer in Cleveland, Ohio. Not exactly the most Mediterranean of U.S. cities. The older family members who were born in Ireland tended to receive the most sun damage. They would arrive at weddings and be missing an ear or have a new fake plastic nose where patches of skin and cancer were removed. And they would point at whatever part was missing and explain, The sun got me. Got me. Which is something you normally say after sheriff tickets you not losing a body part to melanoma. Perhaps they were fatalistic about it because they did nothing to avoid it. None of them used sunscreen. And I believe that is because fearing or loving the sun 
is a lot like fearing or loving dogs. It's entirely based upon your childhood experiences. They grew up in Ireland, where the sun is docile and well-behaved, so they consider it approachable and cuddly. They do not fear it, nor appreciate the power and destruction it is capable of in other parts of the globe. I was bitten by the sun often enough as a kid to always fear it, no matter where I am on Earth. It was a giant, glowing Doberman, as far as I was concerned. A few years ago, I had two large marks just below my lip, which I thought to be pimples. I made an appointment with a dermatologist, which I despise doing. Me entering the office of a dermatologist is like a very obese man entering the office of a cardiologist. I get a lot of, oh boy, and go ahead and cancel my next appointments type responses on first sight. And it goes further downhill when they see my answers to their office forms. On this particular appointment, the dermatologist met me in the exam room. The doctor entered, reading the questionnaire that I had just completed in the lobby. Mr. Flannery, this says you consume more than six drinks a day? No, I answered. It says I average six drinks a day. There are many days where I have less. Today, I've only had four. Do you understand? Binge drinking is five drinks in a day. As an aside... The first three times a doctor told me this, I laughed out loud. Well, I responded, binge drinking must be one of those words where the general population is using it differently than experts. Also, I said experts with air quotes, showing that I questioned that number. It was a pause, so I felt it necessary to elaborate. Like enormity or data, I went on. We use it one way, but quote-unquote experts use it differently. The people I know, when they say binge drinking, they're talking about a lot more than five beers in a day. <laughs> I mean, are you saying every person I know is an alcoholic? The doctor visibly scanned me up and down and then said, that's possible. She returned to the form on her clipboard. And I see your family has a history of skin cancer, Mr. Flannery, correct? On which side would that be? All four sides. I'm sorry, you have a history of skin cancer... On all four sides of your family? Doctor, am I your first Irish patient? She laughed at that and started examining me. Uh, it's this bump here, right? She confirmed while looking near my lips, then stepped back uneasily. We're going to take that out today, she said before adding, I'm going to use a scary word, but I don't want you to panic because this looks like something we caught early and it should be no danger to you once we remove it. But I think that could be cancer. There was a silence, which she must have interpreted as shock on my part, so she continued reassuringly, you're going to be fine. We caught this early, and we're going to remove it right now. I thought about it for a moment and answered, today's not good. What? She reacted, a bit taken back. I have some buddies in town. There was another pause. I assumed she could deduce the rest, but she could not. We have Cubs rooftop tickets. What does that have to do with cancer? The tickets include all-you-can-drink beer. I can't be on any meds tonight. She tried to understand my intent, but ultimately trailed off asking, So you're saying... It's a no-go, I clarified, as though I was ground control telling a pilot to find a different airport. What we have on our hands here is a definite no-go. She asked for one or two more confirmations, and I explained that if it was as harmless as she was saying, what's one or two more days? 
She eventually relented and told me to schedule an appointment with her staff. No problemo, I pledged. See you soon. By the way, she asked while opening the door of the exam room to leave, what else does enormity mean? It means something that is hugely evil. It has nothing to do with measuring size, generally. Really? She said, then left, shaking her head. I collected my sweater and exited the room. The doctor was going over paperwork with a nurse in the hallway. I reached the billing desk and there was a line of people. I gave it about five seconds to move. It didn't. So I walked straight out of the office. And I'm pretty sure the doctor saw me refusing to wait ten seconds to make an appointment to remove cancer. Wow, she must have reasoned. That is either the world's most impatient man or the world's most slowly suicidal. But what are two more days, I thought. Plus, an appointment can be scheduled just as easily over the phone. I murmured all of this to myself while leaving the office. Except, I never made that call. The need to call to have this operation left my mind completely the moment I walked out of that building. Not so much because I am absent-minded, though I very much am so, but because at this stage in my life, I truly believed I was indestructible. I had survived so many injuries and accidents, walking off a roof, electrocutions, yes, plural, driving off a bridge, ribs pushed in, arms pulled out, that to outlast all of that, I believed I could not die. Most of us have entertained unrealistic body goals. Maybe you thought you could be a circus performer or an outfielder for the Cubs. Well, I thought I could be deathless. So I forgot to call a doctor to have them cure me of a tumorous growth in my face. Now, I'm not sure if it's because doctors have sworn to help you or they just want to get paid, but I can say with a certain degree of confidence that no creature on earth will hound you more doggedly than a doctor who thinks they can perform an operation on you. One time, a guy used my identity to steal a limo from a Florida airport, and that airport and its bill collectors called me less regularly than this doctor. Two weeks later, I was at a bar called High Tops near Wrigley Field with friends in town, drinking on a weekday afternoon before a Cubs game. One of my buddies was visiting with his long-term girlfriend, and she had not met his high school, shall we say, friends, quote-unquote. I put friends in quotes because back when my buddies were a few years out of college and meeting women and considering marriage, the reaction from each of these ladies when they met us was, that's how men treat their friends? To a woman, the male friendship looks more like fully reciprocal bullying than any kind of emotional rapport. You guys let him get so drunk, he was vomiting into his dresser, and you were laughing. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Those are his clothes. You're supposed to be his friend. Every time I told Jessica a story from back home, about a person falling from a statue we told him to climb, or hydroplaning from a flooded road we said his car could handle, or just being straight up abandoned in Hiawatha, Kansas by us, she would confirm, and this person is your friend. In that anxious, doubting tone women use when they aren't sure if they've misunderstood the story, or, more frighteningly, you and your friends really are this stupid. I'm not sure how or why, but male friends talk each other into situations that, on paper, look like they were designed by your worst enemy. My buddy warned as much, saying his friends were a bit, I think the word he used, nutty. We met at high tops. Back then, I would drink whatever was cheapest. So that day, I was drinking jello shots. 
the bar made too many and we're looking to unload them at the dangerous and quite frankly irresponsible price of 25 cents a pop. While ordering the latest round of jello shots for the group, I glanced at my phone and noticed that someone had left me a voicemail. We did the shots and I checked my messages. It was the dermatologist's office again, reminding me to schedule an appointment to remove the tumors. My friends noticed that I was trying to listen intently to the message, which surprised them since I never checked messages. Who's calling you during a baseball game? Someone asked. Oh, dude, I forgot. I have cancer. They stared at me. Yep, in my face. My buddy's girlfriend, who was meeting us, did a spit take. Which, when you're drinking jello shots, is less like spit and more like a tiny little barf. What? She yelled. Oh yeah, right there as it happens, I answered, pointing to the offending area of my face. I excused myself to call the doctor's office back. For two weeks, I had been putting off returning the doctor's calls. But this was the first time I heard the message drunk. I have an odd habit where, when I'm day drunk, I go out of my way to prove that being drunk in broad daylight won't affect my productivity. I end up completing errands that I have been avoiding for months. In some ways, it's an efficiency boost. But, almost always, I complete the errand the way a drunk would, and I only create three additional errands in order to clean up the mess. I dialed and they answered. Hello, Dr. Lundy's office. It sounded like Jennifer, who had left the message. Hello, Jennifer. This is Sean Flannery calling on behalf of, uh, well, Sean Flannery. I have a second terrible habit when day drunk. If I'm talking to a sober person, I use inflated language in order to not sound drunk. I know other people that do this when drunk. They try to interface with the sober person in stilted language. And it never works. The best case outcome is you sound like a British person with dementia. But usually, the other person clearly knows you are blasted. Mr. Flannery, we've been trying to reach you. And so I've heard. I think my staff has been failing to relay all my messages. But that is a conversation for another day. What day should I come in for this operation? This abscission? This, may I call it, a miracle? How's next Tuesday? Beautiful. I hung up, got blackout drunk, and did not show up the following Tuesday. Eventually, though, I did revisit the doctor's office. Had two small basal cell cancer gross removed, one under my lip and one under my ear. The gross were tiny. I only needed a couple of stitches and was sent on my way. Two years later, in a conservatory in Columbus, Ohio, I was attending the wedding of my buddy and his girlfriend, the same couple I had met at High Tops that day. Gorgeous ceremony. What a location. I said to the couple when they approached the table I was seated at, and they both laughed heartily and thanked me for coming. Much later in the night, I ran into the groom at the bar, and while we were talking, I learned why they laughed so hard when I complimented them on the location. In a way, you chose the conservatory for us, he explained. We had been talking about marriage for a while, before you and the other guys met us that week in Chicago, and we always said, art museum or conservatory. Then she met you, and I, I told her you guys were nutty, but at that bar, what was it called, High, high Tops? Yeah. She meets all of you, and if you remember, we got loaded off jello shots. And as we were walking to the game, she's like, I think we get married at the conservatory. And I'm like, cool, why? And she answered, I don't think we can invite your quote-unquote friends to a wedding at the art museum. 
And I said, I thought they were okay at high tops. And she goes, they just got absolutely loaded off jello shots. And the guy buying most of the rounds had to be reminded he has cancer. We cannot have them drinking next to a Renoir. At least trees can survive them. The bartender slid the groom his drink. We were both laughing hard. And he finished the story with, I think she always suspected my friends were jackasses, but when she met all of you, (laughs) I think that's when the full enormity of it hit her. (laughs) He returned to his guests laughing. The bar was only serving beer and wine, and at the end of the bar, I saw other friends ordering wine to be filled into espresso cups to be drunk as shots. Shot of red wine? One of them inquired back. Yes, I believe it's called a a rogiato. I joked back, accepting it and shooting the wine. They immediately ordered a second round, and it occurred to me, I don't think my buddy, the groom, knew the actual correct definition of enormity. But in this context, as we waited for another round of table wine to be poured into espresso cups, he pulled it off. 